HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following program has been brought to you by the Barter House. Well, I think I think part of the sourcing process to me is the most exciting because you you know you rent a car and you drive through the south of France and you know you obviously have some appointments set up, but you know some of the most exciting things happen when you're just kind of winging it. And you meet a farmer at you know a wine fair, and he's you know, he says, "Well, come back to my come back to my estate," and you're not quite sure where you're going. You follow a guy in a Peugeot, you know, up a rambling hill, and all of a sudden you you come across either a castle or a, like a shack in the woods, and the guy's making wine out of a, the back of his you know house, or he could be making wine out of a major estate. You know, looks are deceiving, but you you want to. You want to assume that someone with a very established chateau is making good wine, but nine times out of ten, the guy out of the garage who's like super passionate is making these better wines and they're maybe more, more rustic and less polished. So to me, like the restaurateur, the sommelier, this story resonates with them about the small farmer, you know, the guy who's making wine um, on small quantities, 80 cases, 100 cases. Those are the things exciting to Barterhouse and hopefully the things exciting to our clients. Okay, it's Thursday at one o'clock and you are tuned into the Farm Report. You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. We're coming to you live from the back of Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. We are in studio with John Amoroso. John was the city's first, and I believe only, cooperative extension agent. Is that right, John? Well, agricultural extension agent, and primarily the first and uh, the last. The last, yeah. So tell us, um, before we get into this too much, what exactly is a cooperative extension agriculture agent? Well, well cooperative <laughs> extension is that throughout the United States, you have the land-grant schools that... Uh, Basically, is if you're going to go to study agriculture, you go to those schools. But they're also the home of extension agents that work throughout counties in each state. Example would be in New York State, um, each county has its own county association where part of the money comes from USDA, part comes from Cornell, part from the county, part from the state. It's, a, it's called a county law to something or other like that where to support uh, agriculture extension agents who bring the research of the university to the at the time that it was formed in 1912 to the common people. Okay, so there's Cornell University in New York State, and they're up there. It's a big ag school. They're doing all kinds of stuff, and the extension agents basically act as like an a- 
an emissary for their programs, kind of bringing the information out. So right, that right, right. It's basically they're taking the uh, university research information uh, and bringing it out to the counties, working with the, the farmers and stuff. New Jersey, you have Rutgers, which is the land grant, mm-hmm. and then you got UMass and such. So they're all doing the same programs. Also, cooperative extension is sometimes people understand more when you say 4-H. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I remember 4-H. Everybody sure. understands 4-H uh, as an extension agent. Co-op- the other way to let people understand what a, a agriculture extension agent is, if you ever watch the program um, with Eddie Albert, uh, it was called Green something Green Green Acres. Green Acres. And they okay. Used to, they used to have the extension agent used to show up all the time, Mr. Gimble, <laughs> and, and he would hand out pamphlets. You know, the, Eddie Elbert would ask him about, I want to build a you know a barn for a so and so in the extension. Well, I, I have pamphlets on it. And right, drop right, off the pamphlets. right. There you go. So probably not a lot of barn building in New York. You started that position in 1976. Right. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And and how were you qualified? I mean, what's your background? You know, to get that kind of a job. Well, usually to, to work as an extension agent or ag extension agent, you have to have a degree in some form of agriculture. Um, my degree, I originally went to the state university uh, SUNY system, which is Alfred, which is a two-year school in uh, Allegheny County, and got a degree in uh, soils and agronomy, and then transferred to the University of Georgia, which is also the land-grant college, uh, land-grant school for the state of Georgia that has extension. And there I received a Bachelor of Science in Agronomy uh, at Georgia. Now, my position, if it still existed, requires a master's degree. Oh, so the stakes have been going up. Right. <laughs> um, so you didn't go directly from Georgia back to New York, though. There was a, another stop in between, right? Right. Well, this is the year 1968, which is probably, there's a book out on 1968. To me, it was, was one of the most exciting years in my life, but also to look back and that they're writing books about it. It was at the years of protests, the Vietnam War. Uh, everything was going on. Uh, at that point, when I graduated University of Georgia, you know, the next step would be you'd maybe go to a graduate degree. And at that point, you had deferments. And also, you're looking to not get drafted. Sure, yeah. But the deferment ended. So uh, I actually was, um, I actually remember being going to Atlanta, Georgia. For physical, passing a physical, and uh, you know my number was low on the lottery type thing, but at my last semester at or last quarter at the University of Georgia, one of the professors came out with this piece of paper that says, "There's an organization that's looking for teachers and agriculturists." It was called IVS, International Voluntary Services, mm-hmm. which was similar to the Peace Corps. I, I jumped on it, right, right, <laughs> and applied to it, applied to the Peace Corps at the same time, but they took their time. But IVS snatched me up mainly because of the agriculture degree. Uh-huh. So graduated in May out of Georgia. By July, we are at a training program in Harpers Ferry. By all, then later July, we are in the Philippines studying tropical agriculture. Wow. And then I got my assignment, which okay. was early August. And I said, well, send me where you need me. Right. So in the, the, <laughs> make the story, story short, they sent me to Vietnam. Wow. So I ended up well, in, you <laughs> ended up in Vietnam anyway. <laughs> and... I liked it so much there, I stayed four years. Wow, so what were you doing in Vietnam? Originally to work with uh, mostly the peasant farmers in the Mekong Delta, working on small animal production, and also during dry season to introduce uh, newer varieties of uh, vegetables, like uh, cabbages that maybe were bred in uh, Taiwan, but to upgrade their vegetable production and also the small animals. But what really happened is that 
the farmers, this is the time period known as the Green Revolution, uh, where, where you're having these kind of these wheat varieties that were growing in India, but also in the Philippines, the Los Banos Research Center had these, what they call miracle rices. Okay. And uh, th these were dry land rices. You, had a, you did them during dry season, and then you had to develop patties, and irrigate patties. Traditionally, with the Vietnamese, their rice was the floating rices during the, when the Mekong River flooded, flood season. Uh -huh. And you, these floating rices were like seven months to maturity because they would grow as the water level went high. And then you waited to maybe December when the water went down. And then these fields are all barren, and then you harvested the rice. So and then they really dependent on kind of what was happening on the right, river. Right, right. And then they would go to that point on small, small he uh, hectares, mm -hmm. small acres that they always rented. They didn't own land. Then they would do vegetable production. But when these rices that they heard about were coming out, these three, four, three months, four months, short season rices, short height, you know, maybe uh, 36 inches tall at the tops, uh, also produced 10 times the amount. They were interested in that, but it required kind of cooperation where they had to form like farmer groups so they could borrow money to buy pumps, which had to come from another country. I remember it was Kubota pumps, uh, to be able to paddy off and then build trenches to pull water so that they can irrigate during dry season. Okay. Wow. So it sounds like that kind of work probably prepared you in some ways for your return to Brooklyn, but what, what led you back to New York? But when I came back, it was like 1972, uh, from uh, the Buffalo area. I was never in New York City. And okay. I, was, I was always in those couple of years. That was, if anybody's listening here and who knows that time, it was time of recession. There was no jobs. <laughs> but I always wanted to get back into cooperative extension. So I, with Cornell, I was always on their list of getting job descriptions and went for a couple of positions. I remember once, and thank God I didn't get it, was a dairy agent in Utica, New York. Different uh, life, huh? Right, right, right. And a couple other things. But then in 76, when this position uh, a small pilot program called the Urban Gardening Program was looking for someone to work with inner city people and growing stuff, and that kind of fit the bill for me. Yeah, so you had it done, and you were based out of Brooklyn at the time? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I came in. I was never to New York City before, even though I'm from Buffalo area. Uh, came in, I remember it was like April 10th, 1976, for an interview, and by April 20th, I was here. New uh, York City boy. So I, you know... We were talking a little bit before the show about how, you know, we're out in Bushwick now and how much this neighborhood has changed. And I can imagine this, the cityscape must have looked totally different in 1976. Yeah, 1976, uh, one of the main reasons for the community gardening program, it was not particularly, it, it was in Fred Richmond's eyes, Congressman Fred Richmond, uh, House of Representatives, to get an ag agent here so people could learn how to grow food, understand about food. But when I look back at that time period now, I mean, that was my intention coming and doing it. But when I look back 35 years, uh, it, was more of a, it was more of a crisis time, and the community gardening program kind of took back neighborhoods. Okay. It, it was block association buildings. It was people getting the, together. It wasn't really the growing of the food, but it was the cleaning up your block, your neighborhood, taking back what was kind of just taken away from you, where we had just areas that were just devastated. So the gardens became a real mechanism for kind of community development and social change. And right, right. You had at that point, I remember the Citizens Committee of uh, New York was changed its name now. Uh, in the fall and stuff like that would have uh, big forums about forming block associations. And then we used to always piggyback it with community gardens. But community gardens became a tool to, to get people together on a block or in a neighborhood to do other things in their neighborhood. Okay. Not with what they are now. They're different. All right. So... 
So you show up, you're in Brooklyn, there's kind of all this stuff going on, it's kind of a heated environment, people are looking to take back their neighborhoods. What what were some of the kind of first couple of years, what did that look like? What type of projects were you tackling? What were some of the kind of... But the first year was, I was uh, my office was at the YWCA, Atlantic and 3rd Avenue in Brooklyn, which is also where I first put my first foot down in New York City because I was picked up at the Newark Airport. <laughs> so it was very nice for, for me, territory to me. Is that I was supposed to work with five gardens um, that were kind of part with Magnolia Tree Art Center, mostly in Bed-Stuy, one in, uh, um, in Fort Green, one in uh, Cobble, not Cobble Hill, but Borham Hill, uh, and another kind of Williamsburg South, you know, it's, I forget what they call the area now. Uh, and these were groups that already existed and we needed some help on it. But by the end of that year, we had about 15 gardens going. Okay. Because once you went to one place, somebody else asked you. Heard about you. Yeah, and then, like, so you went, who's this guy, this John guy? Right, we got to right. get this guy. And, yeah, and that's kind of the key in doing any kind of development work like that is you got to be out there. you got to be, you know, it's not a nine-to-five job. You're out there all the time. Where people want to meet at night, do this and that. You, if you sh- you're there. If you show up, you're going to have... Success. You're gonna, you know, people are gonna ask for it. You're gonna get uh, things done. So, what kind of stuff were people growing? At then, it was um, always a mix of things. At that point, a lot of the folks who were working up were recent uh, transplants from down south. Okay. Remember of the migration of uh, American blacks? Yeah, the Great after, Migration after sure. World War II up mm-hmm. this way. This is seventy, so there's remnants of them. So they had uh, kind of things that they recognized. They would have the collards, your basic. Uh, so lettuces of what seed you could get then, uh, and then your usual tomatoes, eggplants, peppers, common things, squash. Um, there was no exotics yet. You know, the bok choys and some of the other microgreens didn't exist in anybody's mind then. Uh, so that was the primarily what they were interested in. And one of the big things, I have to say at that time, uh, the most interest was collards and beans, bush beans. Bush beans. I think collards are, we had um, one of the reps from Corbin Hill Farms on uh, earlier this season. She said collards are still kind of the most demanded item for them up in the Bronx. So were you working only in Brooklyn or did you extend? Well, did, I mean, how did your work but, kind of extend beyond that? It just starting off like in April in 76. By the end of the summer, I was also doing some work. Like on, uh, I remember Fox Street in the South Bronx. Um, Started also out in Staten Island and Stapleton area, which was kind of the, I guess, would be called your most depressed area okay. of Staten Island. Still is. <laughs> uh, I remember being in the Bronx, some sites in Harlem that were just getting started. Uh, but by the second year, by 77, uh, that's when the National Urban Garden Program was started, where there was uh, $1.5 million appropriated to the five largest cities, which New York City got 500000 So we were able to hire people like me in each borough. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and then also um, people like me and also assistants and also nutritionists. Those are the fat years. Yeah, because remember the, my... The golden years well, yeah, of yeah, funding. I, rem- I remember clearly because my first salary starting was $10,300. <laughs> and then when we got the big money in right, 77, right. they jumped me up to 13000 <laughs> <laughs> Right now, that's below poverty level on most standards. <laughs> um, so, yeah, can you talk a little bit about the urban gardening program? I mean, that start, so it started with five cities, but that program lasted a few years until it, till right, 94. Right, right. Is sta- that right? Yeah, it started with five cities at one point five. Million, us getting we were the largest 500,000. Then you had Chicago, Boston, Philadelphia, uh, Los Angeles, I believe, like in the realms of 250,000 each because it was all population based. Okay, but by the time the program ended in 1994, when the federal monies were shifted to what they call formula funding to each state, got a little bit of it instead of based on the population. 
there was approximately 25 cities involved because the funding went up. Right. Each, uh, our funding stayed the same, 500000 which means as time went on, we started losing people because working for the university, you know, you got to get salary raises. And, and so eventually when we had a staff of 35 for the city, we were maybe down to 15 at one point. And by 1994, we were down to five or six. So the programs were really, it sounds like, dependent on, on federal funding, right. mm-hmm. not, not state or city funding. And no, it was all, all federal. Uh, we would get support if needed. Like when that 1994 dollars disappeared, we did get support uh, from the university um, because it's Cornell. Right, right. <laughs> and they, they have a pretty good endowment uh, to keep some programs going. I was always able to hang on because I was being an old-time extension agent grandfathered in under Smith Lever law, which is money appropriated to ag extension agents. Okay. No matter what, I was under that funding, but that sort of disappeared a couple of years ago too. So that kind of kind of helped to keep me hanging on uh, after 1994. But challenging, you build up those programs where you have a staff of 35, and then to kind of keep all that stuff going when your right. your staff well, is shrinking, your budget well, is shrinking. Well, it's also like when like our staff, like when our people are working with this. A lot of people use working for Cornell was a prestigious to have that on your resume. Right. So a lot of the young people were hiring uh, to work on this. Always went on to other things. And okay. actually, in the city, there's a whole bunch of people that are still here that came out of our system. Oh uh, really? Right, right, right. There's, uh, I mean, a lot of them have left already, but uh-huh. we have some. He's the Parks Commissioner in Westchester. Okay. Arnie Abramowitz, and we got Gerard Lodell, who runs uh, Counseling Environments, uh, Green Team type stuff. Uh, Tommy Ching, who's uh, Borough Parks, Borough Parks, uh, Borough what is it Horticulturist for, uh, New York, for Brooklyn. Okay. So we have people that came from us and always use as a stepping stone, which is what we do, which right. is in extension, even now when we're doing nutrition education programs, our community educators that are working out there with people showing up things, we, we're always doing training with them, you know, to really... And hopefully they would then go out and get other jobs. Yeah, train the next generation of, right. of, Cause of also, agents. Yeah, because also we weren't the highest paying. What? <laughs> uh, <laughs> if, if, I to, if I told you what I retired at, what salary I was making, I'll retire. You're saying, how could that be if you worked there 35 years? Living in New York City, too. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will hear more from John on New York City and urban farming. Following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Tune in to Hot Grease every Monday at 3.30 p.m. 
Hakri strives to bring sustainability, localized sourcing, and other forward-thinking schools of culinary thought to the minds and kitchens of everyday folk. Each week, Nicole Taylor's conversations cover the entire spectrum of food enthusiasts, from internationally renowned culinary masters to moms on a budget looking to impress their tiniest critics. Again, that's every Monday at 3.30 p.m., Hot Grease on the Heritage Radio Network. Okay, we are back. You are listening to The Farm Report. We are live in studio with John Amoroso talking about urban farming in New York. So, John, before the break, we had kind of come up to about 1994. We're in New York City. The Urban Garden Program funding is cut. What, kind, what did the next couple of years look like? I mean, what were the, who were the movers and shakers? What were the, the programs that became developed? Like, how did you kind of work to facilitate the stuff that had been started under that program? Right. Well, 1994, it's also like that time period, like maybe the late 80s into early 90s. To me, community gardening was losing, community gardening was losing its uh, not popularity or influence. All of a sudden, a lot of the gardens were, when there was a lot of people in them, now there was less. And maybe that had to do with attrition where people dying, leaving the neighborhood, and, and or like a few people just taking over and kind of making them... Uh, exclusive of Got other people. a little people. political. Right, right. I, I kind of, even at that point, was losing interest. But there was, in those early 90, uh, 94 or so, there was starting to get into this quite interest of uh, local foods. Okay. You know, like, and there was a group called the Sustainable Agricultural Working Group, uh, New York State and National, that dealt with local farms, local issues. And that was kind of the birth of uh, Just Food. Okay. Know, so probably the premier organization right now in the city as far as doing things like I would do, like extension outreach and or programs and markets and stuff. Okay, can you tell us a little bit more about like Just, Just Food, what is the, what kind of encompasses their work now? In, in the beginning, it's like in 95, was it 96? Uh, Kathy Lawrence, who was our first director, was actually um, doing this part-time. Okay. So she would take temporary jobs because as a temp, as a secretary, you can get all your work done and then work with the computers and work with Just Food. And uh, what really kicked it off was there was a $20,000 grant from uh, SARE, Sustainable Agriculture Research, to do some research on goats in the city and, and the possibility of uh, promoting goat marketing in the city uh, because right now a lot of the halals and stuff like that were using lamb. It okay. was cheaper or you imported goat. And there was a lot of farmers upstate that wanted to do goats. As a, so it was a $20,000 grant that uh, uh, I believe 5000 was administered to Just Food. So that was kind of the start of it. And then from there on in, uh, there's little grants here, little grants there. You get in a 501c3. And then uh, the big thing came is that through the community, um, the community support, the community um, monies, the federal monies that give monies to uh, groups that are involved in agriculture programs, the community food security grants, they okay. call it. Uh, we applied a program called the City Farms, which was to get community gardens jump started again to grow food. Get people together, grow food, but grow it in a system like you would grow as a farmer, not little plots, and grow food and, and donate it to soup kitchens. Okay. And so that, that came through. That was a good three-year grant that supported Kathy as administrator, also be able to hire a city farms program manager and stuff like that. At that time, I'm still working for Extension, so my services are free. Right. Uh, and from there, we developed a city farms program that uh, work with community groups that want to grow food for soup kitchens and then work with them about doing some marketing. Okay. Doing what I call traditionally right now urban agriculture. Not only growing food for the soup kitchens, but now starting to grow food for your community. And that means maybe doing a farm stand, connecting with a, 
uh, a rural farmer who will bring stuff in that you can sell, um, doing maybe a CSA, the Community Supported Agriculture, but starting to do more activities. Something bigger than, than just kind of having the garden plot. Right, right, right. So that conversion through the years, and then we had other groups popping up like Added Value and Red Hook Brooklyn. Then we had East New York Farmers, which is another premier group that grows food and sells it. Actually, last year, uh, total produce grown in the city with the city farms or the East New York Farms and sold at their market was close to $20,000. Wow. The farmer's market itself maybe grossed about 90000 and that was from outside farmers, but 20000 was growing right in East New York at this and sold at this one farmer's market. So what was going on is that community gardens, as I said, were getting pretty boring in the late 80s and 90s. And, uh, and I look back, back what, in the 70s, why was there community gardens? Just mm-hmm. as we had victory gardens during both world wars right. because of time of crisis. The community gardens in the 70s was times of crisis because the city was falling apart. Uh, and now I'm looking at the times of crisis is that what's, what is, to me, I'm still baffled by it, is that why is urban agriculture so um, in right now? Right, uh, and then I'm trying to think about. It. I'm saying, well, you know, urban agriculture. The, the definition people think are you growing food in an urban area, but to me, urban agriculture is growing food in an urban area, but also uh, having a rural farmer buy into that community. So you got this urban-rural connect. Um, I'm saying, but why are people so interested in urban agriculture? And then it occurred to me too, just like the crisis of the '70s of taking back your neighborhood. Now the crisis is uh, food security, health. You know, we have problems with diabetes, obesity, and everything is related to food. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and it's all related to food. And, and so urban agriculture is kind of the crisis where in neighborhoods we still don't have good, proper food access. Now that community garden, that urban agriculture site, is the focal point where you know we could do a farm stand there, we could get people together. Maybe we can have a farmer drop off stuff. Maybe eventually develop farmers markets like right now with just food there's 18 farmers markets that not are not part of the green market system that at, at some of these sites um so to me that crisis was that whole food crisis but what's very interesting is that once when these community gardens in the back in the 80s uh, were only active maybe in the spring and fall there'd be people in the weekends there and maybe the evenings in the summertime you go there you can barely find anybody there occasionally one or two people and the gates are shut now any community garden that transferred or became into an urban agriculture project and usually has a good leader mm-hmm. that's interested in taking uh, command and doing something in their community, like food access for the community. Now these community gardens doing urban agriculture, what I, I call are active now eight days a week. There's always <laughs> something going on. Like before yeah. when there was weekends of nobody there, now they're jam-packed at weekends with people. There's always something going on. So it must be exciting to have kind of really gone through the the gamut and get to see kind of this transition of of growing food and growing food in an urban environment, kind of taking on these different kind of uh, I'm searching for the word here these different the, missions essentially mi- mis- behind them missions that I would have never imagined, and I still baffles me. <laughs> so so I don't know if our listeners remember from the beginning of the show, but your position no longer exists in New York City. What happened? Right. Well, when I retired uh, last March, um, it was time. I was 65. You know, it's uh, got to retire sometime. Plus, our monies were, were, you know, right now extension is very dependent upon grants and stuff like that. And it's the cooperative extension throughout the United States is kind of shrinking in size. And there's it's just 
it's one of these things that are maybe not going to exist at some point, at least not in the form of the Mr. Gimbal. Okay, <laughs> right, with the it, pamphlets. Yeah, right, right. It's, it's going to be something else. Uh, and so my Smith Lever funds are going down, and, uh, and then my boss says, oh, I says, I want to, re- you know, I wanted to retire of December of um, 09, not March of 10. But he goes, you just, you know, just hang on for three or three or four months. You know, we got some things to do. And I said, okay, I'll just hang around to the March and stuff like that. And that's good. Uh, and now there, there was, and people say, well, who's going to replace you? Are they going to hire someone? Well, I always make the joke. First of all, I says, I, I'm in, some people are re- replaceable in most cases. But I'm, <laughs> I'm irreplaceable. <laughs> and it's, and I, sometimes I say, but I, I really mean it too. <laughs> you know, people wouldn't do what I did in all those 30 years as far as uh, the time spent working with people and stuff sure. like that. Sure. It was one yeah. of those jobs where it's like right. the passion for the work is really what sustains you, not the, right. the lucrative salary or the <laughs> prestigious position or the great working hours. Or Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's even if they, I said, well, they're, they're not going to replace because also there's no money to replace unless a hunk of money came some somewhere to to do a run a program like that. Then, well, then then they would. You know, Then you do a job search and then, then you try to find someone to replace me. You could find people who could do the same things. You probably could find someone who could be as active as I was before and work with all the groups. And they would have to be because I'd be around over their shoulder complaining. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, what's that over yeah, there? Uh, what, what, you're going away for a week in the, in the middle of spring? How come you can't work this weekend? You know <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, I want to touch on something a little bit lighter. Um, you're... You suggest Pat's Blue Ribbon as a as a gardening oh, tool. Can you tell us tell us yeah. what that's about? I used to have a problem like in most of these uh, back in the seventies and stuff. You always had a lot of debris in gardens, wood and things. Uh, and if you have slugs, uh-huh. you know we always tell people this is how you get rid of slugs: is eliminate the stuff they're hiding under the rocks, the board, all the junk you bring into the community garden. Says if that don't work, you take a tin pan, you kind of sink it at ground level. You know, picture a tin pie plant just sunk into the ground, so something can walk into it, uh, and use uh, put beer in it. And research has shown that was Pabst ribbon that worked the best. This was <laughs> this was actual research. Really? In the nineteen seventies. This is like from the from Cornell research. No, no or this like... is from somewhere else. Okay, okay. But it makes sense if right. you think about Pabst ribbon as compared to other beers. Uh, I'm sure. Right now, a lot of the microbrews will fit into that category because of the more of the yeast and the smell. Uh-huh. But back then, remember the beers, we didn't have microbrews. Okay. All you had is uh, the manufactured beers. You had the Schmitz, the Ballantines. You had things that were just not very good beers. <laughs> you think about it. <laughs> but Paps was the winner of the, it had the most smell to it. <laughs> okay. All right. So like a little history of beer, a little history of uh, urban farming in New York City. Jonathan, great to have you. Um, before we go, I want to just ask, like, what is your sense of the future of urban farming in New York? I'm, are you optimistic, pessimistic? What do you see as kind of some of the big opportunities and challenges going forward. Well, I'm always so happy to see people's interest in it. And, that, you know, it's always expanding, you know, because like I say, urban agriculture is just not growing in the city. It's making that connect with the rural farmer. And to me, as an ag extension agent in New York State, is my always your mission is to, to increase farm gate, which is money, for New York State farmers. And what's really going on is that because of this great market we have in New York City, is that there's more farms being created upstate, small farms, which didn't exist 30 years ago. Uh, and it's also being taken over using land that normally wouldn't have been used for farming, like dairy farms that you may not think to grow vegetable crops on, but the dairy farms are gone. But we can grow vegetable crops on it, so you have a lot of entrepreneurs that are able to do things on that. And I see it keep on, uh, keep on expanding. Uh, the limiting factor is in the urban areas is that... Um, 
I would like to see more people really studying the science of growing. Okay. We have a, a lot of people doing things, and you don't have to reinvent the wheel, but if you understand the science of growing, you'll be able to do a much better job. And Just Food has a, a program to help with that, don't they? Their, their well, farm school is... Well, yeah, the farm school has just started this past year. It was a grant from uh, USDA Risk Management, and it's up to... It's, the grant was like maybe somewhere close to 300000 for three years to, to, to train people to become uh, not urban farmers, but also maybe become farmers. Awesome. And that would be kind of nice to have people come out of this who will do some things here, but also get into farming and then still have this connect with the city, which is the urban ag piece. It's what that farmer then knows their market here. We have food grown locally. Uh, so in times of crisis, which is now, like, we, you know, food security is outside of the, um, the problem with health and eating, but also food security, as we've seen after 9-11, where uh, weeks afterwards, it was, there was a shortage of uh, fresh produce in the city. And I remember a couple of restaurants in Chinatown had closed doors because they couldn't get food access. Wow. So the more farms we have closer to the city, the more beneficial it is for the city in awesome. case we have times of crisis. Exactly. In case we have a tsunami. But I don't think, <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen here. <laughs> well, John, thank you so much for coming in. Just to, to note, I do believe that the farm school is currently uh, – accepting uh, applications to enroll students for their summer right. program. So check them out at justfood.org. And then tune in next week at 1 o'clock. We'll have Jessica Zim, former New York dairy queen, uh, who currently runs the Tia Shoke Dairy in upstate New York. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. And now here's some behind-the-scenes food news with Katie Kiefer. On MeetingPlace.com this week, uh, Lisa M. Keefe, one of their principal writers, published the following article about the USDA's child nutrition program. She reports that on Tuesday, the USDA began implementing new rules that are intended to put more locally grown agricultural products on school children's plates. Part of the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act of 2010, which was signed by President Obama in December, the rules allow schools and other providers to, quote, give preference to unprocessed locally grown and locally raised agricultural products when buying food for the national school lunch, school breakfast, special milk, child and adult care, fresh fruit and vegetable, and summer food service programs. Quote, this rule is an important milestone that will help ensure that our children have access to fresh produce and other agricultural products, said Agriculture Undersecretary Kevin Concanon in a news release. It will also give a much-needed boost to local farmers and agricultural producers. This is Katie Kiefer for behind-the-scenes food news. Did you know we have a beer show? Check out a small clip from Beer Sessions Radio. All right, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43, and I'm here with Ray Dieter from the DBA Bars. Hey, Jim. Ray, this is a fun show. We're drinking Belgian beer. We're drinking Ictagum. Hanging out with the guys from 124 Rabbit Club. We got uh, Don 
and Wendy from Vanberg and the Wolf. Well, let's go back a little bit to, to kind of build your pedigree. So the two of, the, two of your top brands that we love and that you have now, Scaldis and Saison DuPont. Yeah, exactly. Tell us uh, how you met those guys, how you started working with them. Well, Saison DuPont was really... that. Was if you want to hear more, head over to HeritageRadioNetwork.com where new episodes of Beer Sessions are posted every week in our archive. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. The following is a message from Heritage Foods USA. In the next few weeks, Heritage Foods USA will be offering an interesting variety of amazing products, ranging from top-quality seafood to their famous pork cuts. At the end of May, the Heritage team will go up to Maine to harvest fresh lobster with sustainable lobster meat. These delicious lobster are a perfect way to kick off the summer season. In the pork department, Heritage Foods USA will offer the maple-cured smoked boneless Heritage ham at an unbeatable price. This offer won't last long, so get them while you can. Place your order today at HeritageFoodsUSA.com or call 718-389-0985. That's 718-389-0985 to place your order with Andrea or Ashley. And don't forget to sign up for the email list and to check them on Facebook and Twitter to get in on their new products, deals, and offers from Heritage Foods USA.